Welcome to the Investment Turnaround. In this podcast series, Dr. Mariana Bosazan interviews world-renowned investors, scientists, and other personalities who shared their solutions toward the sustainable transformation of our financial systems. Our guest today is Dr. Mampela Rampele, co-president of the Club of Rome. She's a medical doctor, a community development activist, researcher, university executive, global public servant, and is now a trustee of the Nelson Mandela Foundation. Previously, Dr. Rampele was vice-chancellor of the University of Cape Town and one of four managing directors of the World Bank in Washington, D.C. Dr. Rampele is the recipient of the French Legion of Honor, six honorary doctorates, and has authored several books and publications on socioeconomic issues in South Africa and elsewhere. So, Mampela, it is a great pleasure to have you, and welcome to our podcast. Thank you very much, Mariana. It's always a pleasure talking to you because you remind me of the younger self that I was. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Well, let's start from the beginning. What happened in your life early on that put you on this path of service to humanity? Well, I was an accidental uh, medical student because I grew up in a country which would not have given me the opportunity to become a scientist, which is what I wanted to become. And so medical, the medical profession became the second best thing to being a scientist. And that was an important uh, decision because it is through being at medical school that I met up with a group of students who ended up shaping the future of South Africa and I became part of that. And that was a group which was led by Stephen Bantu Diko who was a medical student but had risen to become the a student leader and got disillusioned with so-called multiracial politics where the, although the white students professed to want to live in a non-racial society, the, their practical decisions were not that of committed non-racials. And the one uh, seminal moment was when there was a conference of the National Union of South African Students of which Steve Biko was a part of the leadership and they went to the university, the Rose University in Grahamstown where they were having this meeting in uh, July 1968 and having agreed that they were not going to be segregated between black and white students, when they got there and the white students were shown to the residence, which was obviously for white students, the black students were taken to the township to sleep in a church hall in the middle of winter. Steve was so incensed that he left and that was it. That was the last time he had anything to do with the National Union of South African Students. Because when he got 
to his home, which was not very far in King Williamstown. Fortunately for him, there was a the launch of the university student uh, university Christian movement in Stutterheim, and that's where the idea of black students working as a group was founded. But even then, we still called ourselves non-whites, non-Europeans. That was the name that they had that given. Was, everybody yeah. was called who was not white was called non-white. Non-white, yeah. Or non-European. Non-European. In your own country, you In my own country, in Africa. In South Africa. You have people who come and invade the country, take your material goods and take away your identity. So it was to take a few months before we could, the scales fell off our eyes that you can't fight against a system that labels you as a non-something and hope to win. You're deficient of something. So we realized that we needed to liberate our minds so we could then become better agents of transformation for our society. And once we liberated our minds, there was no stopping us. We were able to mobilize other students, in black students in other universities. We were able to mobilize high school students in schools. We were able to mobilize people living in townships in civic, into civic organizations, trade unions, even the faith community, we were able to mobilize them around what we call black theology. You can't worship a God that's supposed to be a white God when we know that the whole story of the Christian faith starts with a Christ who clearly was black. Because how else would he yeah. be told to go and hide in Egypt if he was white? No way. Yeah. He would have been found out. Yeah. <laughs> but ridiculous. the Christ that we were told to worship was a white Christ. And we challenged that. So we were, we liberated ourselves and we began to liberate our society mentally because we decided that a people who are free to name themselves, to celebrate their culture, their identity, it's a people who will be able to be free. You can be physically arrested, but your mind will always be free and your spirit will always be free. But it also meant for me as a woman, that I also had to be free as a woman. Because a patriarchal society is an oppressive society. And as a woman, I could, I felt I had to be free. I can't just free myself as a black person and continue to accept a patriarchal society. So I had been a free person for long before the end of apartheid, we were free. Although they killed all my friends, including uh, Steve Beagle, who was 
detained in 1977 and then beaten to death, basically. Just like you, you were also detained? Yes. What happened with the mobilization that I refer to is that we used the skills we had. So the personal, the professional and the political were governed by the same reality, the same idealism. So our ideals of a free society were put into a practical manifestation through the work we were doing. So we started, for example, a community health center in King Williamstown where Steve Biko had been banned to, which was his hometown. And we became a commune of activists. We published uh, what we call Black Review. We mobilized students in high schools. So the uprising in the Soweto uprising of 1976 was a result of the impact of black consciousness on young people who refused to be forced to learn in Afrikaans, which was the language of the National Party and apartheid. And the brutality with which the apartheid system killed those children led to a build-up of the momentum for change. And that's the momentum that ultimately led to um, us being detained in 1976, in the second half of the year after the June 16th, and a lot of people died. A lot of people were disappeared. And we were, I was detained for four and a half months together with a group of women and, and across the country. The system just panicked. Anybody whom they thought would be a threat to the status quo was detained. And in 1977, a lot of those of us who had been detained in 76 were banished. Now, banishment means they take you away from where you are and they restrict you to a place you don't know. And I was also taken away and restricted to a place in the northern part of the country. So the which is the story with the <coughs> children that uh, were um, yes, dehydrated and which yeah. is how I ended up mm-hmm. in a community where children, it, women had to have six or eight babies because half of them would, would die, die yeah. because of diarrhea and vomiting and undernutrition and so on. So instead of sitting there and being sorry for myself, <laughs> <laughs> I started a clinic at the back of a Catholic church and in the end moved to the room in some shopping complex and ultimately built a community health center, another one. And the children, it was clear to me that the problem was not just the poverty, but also the ignorance. Yeah. But there was a way of talking to people about a different reality. So when I realized that 
what they doing what they were doing is when the Charles Fontanelle goes down because of dehydration they would put some herbs over the fontanelle and for them because they can't see it they think it will get better so I said okay you continue to do that but we will also give the child water and I show them how to do oral rehydration every family has got a bit of sugar a bit of salt and in no time we ended infant deaths in that community we ended Kwashioko, we ended Palagra. People used to have such serious vitamin deficiency that they would get mad. And so I also started working with the traditional healers because once they got mad, they were taken to a traditional healer and they got better because there they used to have better food and so on. So we then figured out that actually we can stop this. And um, in the where we had the premises of the clinic, there was a man who had club feet from childhood and there were nothing ever got done and so he was used to walk on all fours and he was the gardener. So whenever somebody comes with a malnutrition, would, I would then send them to him to show them how to grow spinach, beans, whatever. And in no time, that whole valley, even today, you can get there, you'll find completely transformed. Including the issue of early childhood education and stimulation. Because a lot of children in poor communities, they spend their time at the back of their mums. So we opened the first uh, early childhood centre. And the men used to say, but what are the women going to do? What are the gogos going to do? The grandmothers are supposed to look after the children. I said, the grandmothers can go and tell stories to the children at the preschool, but the children need stimulation. And they need to learn how to socialize with other children, to play and learn. And up to today, you go there, you'll find every village has got two or three preschools. And the children are doing well. The other day, I was in Johannesburg before I came on this trip, and a young man came to sit next to me in a hotel at Santin. He said, you won't know me, but I was one of those children that grew up in the projects that you used to run up there in the north. Wow. And so then you <laughs> went back to and met eventually met Mandela, right? Yes. What is the story with... Um, the story of Mandela is that I've, I was banished from 1977 to 1984. That long? That wow. Long. And you so, couldn't get back? I couldn't get approval. back, but what happened... I'll tell the story of my son. What happened was that I was... When I was banished, I was taken from the offices where we used to run the projects straight to this place with just with the clothes I was wearing. And I took advantage of the fact that they'd spelled my name wrongly, they'd given me a wrong ID. So I eventually got back to King Williamstown under cover of darkness. And that's how I happened to conceive my beautiful eldest son, Trumelo, which means they shoot from a dead tree or a fallen tree. Because by the time he was born, his dad was dead. 
Is de eerste pick-up. Ja. En zo. We lived in that far off place for eight years. Then when the negotiations were starting to end apartheid. Uh, in fact, before that, there was a, a the so-called opening up of the apartheid system starting in the middle of the middle mid 80s. That's when we were then released from banishment and I went back. I went to Cape Town because I always loved Cape Town. I saw it in 1976 for the first time. And I came back and I said to Steve, I don't know, guy, where you are going to live, but I'm going to live in Cape Town when, when freedom comes. So as freedom was coming, I went to Cape Town to live there with my children. And that's when I, Mandela was moved from Robben Island to Posmo Prison uh, in the late 87-88. And I was then at the University of Cape Town as a researcher. And I went to see his wife who had come to see him because he had been admitted Winnie, to Winnie Mandela. Winnie Mandela. Mm -hmm. uh, and so after having seen Winnie just in solidarity because um, she was herself she had been banned like me and banished like me so we were fellow travelers so when mandela heard that we had been to see his wife he then wrote to me to say he would like to me to come and see you and that was in july 1988 and i can never forget the first impression of this tall trim, smiling man who just embraced me and we connected immediately. We spent an hour chatting about what I was doing. He clearly had read about me and he knew about me, but, and that was a friendship and a relationship that started then, 1988, until he died in 2013, I think it was. He was like, he was a friend, he was a father, he was really someone very special in my life and in the life of my children. So when he was released to live on a, in a prison house in Pal, I used to go and visit him every two weeks. He'd send a message through the prison orders that I should come and see. And the whole idea was he wanted to understand the country. He wanted to understand how we as young activists had been able to become the fearless activists that we became. But he also wanted to understand, he said, you know, when we are released from prison, we will be coming back to a country we no longer know. Mm -hmm. And so he was very keen to understand how the country would be, would need to be transformed. And um, we spent long periods of time talking about um, the economy, talking about the society, talking about 
education, talking about um, talking about um, the liberation not just of black people from the racist system but also of women. And that was something that took a while. In fact, I remember the first time we discussed it, he was saying that, well, you know, uh, we have to make sure that we have traditional leaders on the side of the liberation movement because otherwise the apartheid government can use them against us. So I said, well, that's a good idea, but how are you going to handle the conflict between a patriarchal traditional system and the freedom of women who need to make their own choices? Uh, isn't there a contradiction? He had not thought about it and he was visibly shaken and he said, what? My dear, I think uh, we'll have to think about that because it's a very complicated subject. Indeed. <laughs> and uh, you, you can't uh, rush at it. And so I think let's, let's stop our conversation right here. That's how upset he was. And uh, so I left. On Monday, this is Saturday. I used to go every Saturday, every second Saturday. So on Monday, I get a message. The old man wants to see you again this this coming Saturday. Okay. So I get back. To, he said, "Mampela, you noticed that I was very upset about this issue of uh, women liberation versus traditional leadership and so on, but." Just after he left, I opened the television and there was a woman who was a businesswoman, Mrs. Maponya, talking also about this. So she said, I realized that I clearly need to understand this more. And so we spent time talking about it. I said, it's not a question of not respecting traditions, but there are elements of our tradition that we have to change because the world has changed. So, that was, we made peace. So, now with this kind of mindset, given the fact that we're talking with and to business people, investors, economists, people who really care about changing the traditional system into a modern era and something that, moves away from for-profit only measurement criteria for success toward an inclusive people planet and financial sustainability. What would be your recommendation from what you know? How can we shift that mindset? I believe mindset shift happens when people look deep into themselves. Each one of us is a spiritual being and when you look into that spirit you will connect with the 
values that make you understand that being a human being means to be connected to others and to be connected to nature. And I'm fortunate being an African woman because I come from a continent where all of humanity evolved. And that evolution of the human race in Africa was possible because we learned the ancient, our ancient ancestors learned that the only way they could survive in nature was to live in harmony with one another and in solidarity with one another as well as living in harmony with nature. So they were able to live amongst wild animals, in forests, and to cultivate, and ultimately to be able to develop a, a civilization such as is still uh, evident in uh, Sudan, in Ethiopia, and in Egypt. And that civilization was a civilization that had sustainability built into it. So I was brought up in a culture that emphasized that I am a human being only because other human beings recognize me as such. And so Ubuntu, personhood, is more than just to say, it's more than just the, f the physical part of being. It is the embodiment of the mind, the heart, the spirit, and the physical body. And for that, being to thrive, it needs to live in harmony with others and in harmony with nature. Which of course is not given if you focus only on making money, which at the end of the day you won't be able to eat, drink, or, or take with you when you die. Well, money is a tool which is of exchange. Paradigm. Yeah. And as long as we use it as a tool to exchange for the better good of everybody, it is useful. But when it becomes the end and be all, it is then a problem. It becomes poisonous. It blinds us to the beauty of living in harmony with others and promoting the sustainability of this planet that is so beautiful that was given to us. So what kind of advice would you give people who are listen, uh, listening to this, uh, entrepreneurs, investors, in terms of the transformation that you personally had undergone and, and 
how can we take that into what we do? I mean, in terms of the businesses that we do and the investments that we do, the economies, new economies that we're developing, how how would you recommend going about to shift? Because this is clearly the core problem that we have right now. Everything gets measured down because it's it's been made simple, quote unquote, to measure it by dollars instead of the entire ecosystem and humanity. How well, can we shift that? The shift has to start with individuals understanding that they are more than the physical. And if you nurture your personhood, your spiritual, your mental, and your physical body in a way that enables you to understand your purpose in life. Then working as a, as a researcher or as an investor, you are investing in more than simply wanting to have material goods but you want to enhance the quality of life. Whether you are investing in technology, or you are investing in uh, property, the goal has to be more than just simply the return in monetary terms. It's got to be the enhancement of life. And this is why I believe that the best entrepreneurs, the best professionals, the best researchers, the best business people are those who are who invest in a value system that drives what they do as individual persons, but as professionals but also as civic entities, because each one of us is a citizen of some place or other, but we are ultimately citizens of one planet. And so our responsibilities to ourselves, to our professions, to our pursuits, whether as business people or whatever, has to be governed by a system of values that's, that's in harmony. You can't have one set of values about your personal life, which is at variance with the set of values that you use for your business life, or for your research life, or for, for your parental, your, your role as a parent. Every, I believe, that my life is meaningful because I, my life is governed by one set of values. Values that are centered around human dignity, respect for others, and care, and love for others, and love for nature. And when you have that, it's effortless. It's not, you don't have to think about I shouldn't insult that person. I should no, because you you wouldn't want to be insulted. So why, why should we even entertain that? 
We're not separate. Exactly. Yeah. Right. We are connected. Yeah. At a very deep spiritual level. And also, not just connected to those who are of our generation. It's a multi-generational connection to the ancients and to those yet to be born. And so our responsibility to sustainability is not just because it makes our life easier. It is because we have a responsibility. We are stewards of this earth for future generations. Yes, beyond the right side of history. Yeah. Yeah. So how do you nourish your own spirit? What is your transformative practice? How do you make sure that you stay in line with, uh, with your honor system? Well, for starters, I believe that each human being needs to create space for the self. So every morning I get up, open my curtains onto a beautiful Atlantic Ocean, and I give thanks for the dawn of a new day reflect, do some readings, pray, and then I'm ready for the day. And I love beauty, I walk, and fortunately where I live in Cape Town, in Camps Bay, I can walk from my house up the hill, down the hill, along the beach, back to the house, half an hour. And then I stretch my body, shower, bath, I'm good to go. And I love visiting beautiful places like Dubrovnik. And one of the beauties of um, life is that as a single parent, I learned early on to travel with my children. From the time they were nine and four, we used to travel together and visit beautiful places. And now that I've got a grandchild, he also travels all over with us. And life is a celebration every day. How oh, beautiful. How do you want to be remembered, Mampila? I hope people will remember me for my love of life. I laugh a lot, and my laugh is very characteristic. Everywhere people can figure out, oh, she's there. I want to be remembered for that love. But I also want to be remembered for my consistency as a change agent. It doesn't matter where I find myself. When I get involved, like now with the Club of Rome, I it's a great institution, but it was limited by being male-dominated, European-dominated, old people-dominated. And now we are opening it up. Two women co-presidents in the 50-year history of the Club of Rome, first time. And this year, it will be the first time that the Club of Rome has its annual meeting in to the beginning. And so, for me, every day is an opportunity 
to make the world a better place than I found it. And I do this with joy, because that's what it is. Well, it's an honor and a privilege and a great joy to know you and to have had you on our podcast. And thank you for being who you are. And good luck to you in the future and continue to enlighten the world the way you've been thus far. Thank you so much. Thank you, Mariana. You are also a joy for me to know, and that's the beauty. Thank you. Thanks, my dear. For more info on Dr. Rampele, visit clubofrome.org and follow her on Twitter at Mampela R. That's M-A-M-P-H-E-L-A-R. For more on Dr. Bosazan and the investment turnaround, visit investment-turnaround.com.